On July 24, 2009, my sister Olivia was married. Libby, as the immediate family call her, married a woman, and I was fortunate enough to get to know her partner, B, a little before they did. Uh, B, without any sort of exaggeration, is nothing short of amazing. During the ceremony, I saw something quite rare and pretty wonderful. Um, the smile on my sister's face showed happiness for sure, but the expression of love for B was unmistakable and pure. It just beamed um, like n almost nothing I'd ever seen before. Now, all of us have a hard enough time showing our true feelings, whether we're black, white, queer, straight, man, woman, whatever. And like I said, only a few times in my life had I ever seen such a raw and unequivocal display of emotion. It was such an inspiring moment that I still think of her smile regularly and wish that we could all let our guard down at least once in our lives and express the truth through our entire being like Libby did that day. I think we would all be better for it. So we just want to keep this in mind for, today, for today's discussion because um, so many people today don't have the luxury of expressing themselves at all. So many people, including about 4 million children just in the US alone, hide from or ignore the truth about their sexual or gender identity because the consequences of revealing it could just be devastating, even fatal in some cases. In almost every single country in the world, discrimination against queer people um, is institutional. So, you know, and at least some level, it's a belief. Um, what's institutional is just a reflection of the wider social and cultural attitudes. So how do we change social and cultural attitudes? I guess the answer to that is often education. So today we're talking to Dr. Olivia Murray, and she's joining us today to talk about these issues as they relate to a fundamental aspect of our society, and that's education. Dr. Murray is an assistant professor at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. The focus of her work explores awareness of issues of gender and sex for LGBTQ youth. So that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender and questioning school-age youth. She's the author of the book Queer Inclusion in Teacher Education, Bridging Theory, Research and Practice, which is what we're going to talk about um, in our discussion today, as well as um, how Libby came to write the book. So Libby, welcome to the r, &R podcast. Thanks for taking time in your evening to talk about your book. Um, we've both really been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. Indeed. Well, let's just get straight into it. Um, for our Australian listeners, Libby, who's your pick to win the Ashes this year? Um, I mean, Australia has uh, made made fools of England last year, um, but uh, you know, Australia on British soil, they haven't won since two thousand. What do you think? You know, I think it's Australia all the way. Good, good, good pick. <laughs> good pick. Now, mind you, there are a lot of people who are going to place bets based on what you say. So you've okay. either won or lost a, millions and millions of dollars based on that. So anyway. Good to know. All right. So we thought we'd sort of start off a little bit about... Um... Hi, Liv, by the way. <laughs> Hi, Jazz. Good to talk to you. Yeah. Um, we thought we'd just sort of start off by setting the scene before we start talking about the book. Let's have a chat about um, what brought you to this point. So we thought maybe we'd chat about... Um, uh, like what your life was like prior to writing the book. 
So can you give us a bit of information about what your childhood was like? So in particular, we sort of um, want you to think about um, what types of messages you think you received about identity and gender and that type of thing when you were a kid. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in Junction City, Oregon, alongside Ryan and two other siblings. And although I didn't recognize it at the time, I mean, I, you know, we were swimming and kind of a monoculturistic um, space. It, it was very white um, and very uh, agricultural rural town. Um, most people, I would say, identified as heterosexual and cisgender. Um, my earliest memories about anything other in terms of sexualities or gender um, identifications was my aunt coming out. Um, and even that wasn't even coming out. It was more just the family kind of acknowledging it. Um, and, and and I think I was rather old. I, I feel like I was at least 13 or 14. Um, but other than that, it was, it was really just hidden. I mean, um, again, this, this notion of like white encapsulation, like it was, it was just a very, my own experience. And this was growing up with, um, you know, biracial brothers, but it just felt very, very monocultural. Um, and in school, I would say my teacher's I don't know. I didn't know, I guess, what, I didn't know what to name it at the time, but yeah, I mean, I would say that we were socialized, I was socialized to be and act like a girl and to eventually, you know, be courted by, by boys. And um, yeah, that, those were just kind of some of the messages that were transmitted to me. Um, nothing I can name specifically, but Certainly nothing I can name specifically that was a case. It's just there, right? It is just there. Well, and I think that that's one of the exercises in the book that you provide as one of those tools for teachers, for, for potential teachers is, you know, think about, think about what you were exposed to, what you were told in your experience and uh, think about how much of that related to like, same-sex marriage or... Mm. And not um, even just what you're told, but just what you see around you, like, right. and the messages that get sent because, you know, when... I've even had, like, with Everton, our son, black people asking, do you have you got any girlfriends at daycare? Yeah. And he's three. It starts so early. <laughs> so, you know, but, like, yeah. and it's, yeah, it just, it's worded, it's worded in a way that... Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's harmless in as much as the intent to to uh highlight i think or you know their intent is good generally it's not like they mean no like, they're trying to connect and relate yeah. and yeah but but it's that those subtle messages that always get instilled yeah. through um through the constant yeah so yeah hey lib can we just go back to a term that you used before cisgender and could you just explain what that means sure it's essentially um when you're assigned sex at birth matches your gender identity. In other words, it's yeah. non-trans. So um, if I, so I, for instance, I'm cisgender, I was born female with female anatomy and I identify yeah. as a female. Yeah. So do you, so do you have any sort of information or numbers? Um, we like statistics on this show. Ryan does. Do you have any, uh, oh, come on, give me a break. <laughs> do you have any information on like um, transgender uh, the transgender community 
How many of them uh, uh -huh. identify as the opposite and then go through the process of, uh, of you know, sex change, basically, versus how many of those identify but, you know, don't do anything about it? Yeah, I don't have the numbers on that. I know that as kind of a social cultural trend that um, that it's becoming more prevalent to, uh, I guess, as it becomes more socially acceptable for young children to really claim their identities at younger ages, then, and as our medical field gets more educated, there are more prepubescent um, adolescents who can get on things like puberty blockers um, and in fact mm -hmm. some states are beginning to have that covered under health um, coverage and things and so that's getting more accessible and doctors are getting more informed and so um, I, I think that's kind of where we're headed is being able to block puberty from happening with trans kids that doesn't isn't congruent with their identity um, in terms of adults I, I don't know. I'm not sure. So the these puberty blockers, do they, um, is it promoting uh, the other gender? So it's hormonal hormonal therapy primarily, and so it's it's either estrogen yep. or uh, testosterone. Is that correct, or are there yes. other things involved? I, um, you know, this isn't necessarily my area, so mm. I I don't know, but um. Yeah, I, just something to suppress the um, biological uh, changes that are happening in one's body so that they can take time to really assess what they want to do and transition um, mm -hmm. in ways that, that, yeah, that fit with their, their identity. Mm -hmm. So um, just going back to your life lived before you wrote the book, so you were talking about the messages that you got when you were growing up, just from society in general, growing up in a rural society. So like, you know, at what point did you stop sort of just absorbing and listening to that and realize that you may be different? Well, I think before I even was started to question my own sexuality, I, I think a moment of interruption for me came when I was a junior in high school, I was trying to get um, a group of performers to come to our school. I had seen them at some other community event and they were amazing. Um, it was a, a group of performers that that talked about equity and social justice and I my role within the student government at the, the high school was to um, arrange for assemblies and stuff and so I was working with my principal at the time to get to make this happen and as soon as the principal found out that one slice of identity that was covered in these presentations was um, sexual orientation, non-normative sexual orientation. Um, he backtracked and refused to have them come. And so I remember at that moment, um, really just kind of in my own naivety, just questioning like, um, like, like what's, the, what's the problem? Uh, and, and so that for me was, was I think an important moment and not even knowing that underneath that I might be, you know, at the time I was very happily, um, you know, dating a, a, a boy or man, whatever you can say in high school. Um, but, uh, and, and so, yeah. And then I would say in college, I just had, um, 
I don't know, sexual orientation and gender expression just became so much more fluid for me in ways that I just wasn't exposed to in Junction City. And not that Eugene, the, the small town outside of Junction where I went to college was that much bigger, but um, yeah, I, it just, it felt freer to kind of explore things. And once I did, I just kind of, from then on just sort of rejected boxes and didn't really know who I'd end up with or what I'd end up doing or being, but just knowing that, um, that I couldn't go back to like thinking that gender and sexuality were as rigid as I, as I grew up with. So after that time, you spent some time in South Africa in the Peace Corps. Um, how did that experience shape who you are today? Yeah, I mean, it was so transformational. Um, it was it was really generative in the sense that it continues to inform the way I look at privilege, um, my own privilege, and... Um, it, Is that privilege in terms of um, expression? Yeah, I, I guess I mean more universal privilege as like like a white American, English-speaking, educated person. Yeah, but, but then at the same time, living here in the States and being openly out, um, you know, that's an, an aspect of privilege that I don't think many people from the small village I was living in have. Yeah, but um, you don't have to Cape go... Town is, you know... You don't have to go to South but, Africa to get that, you know. That's true, that's true. But yeah, in the village I was... Um, living in for two years, it was really taboo. There was one, um, there was one twenty-year-old that kind of played with his gender a little bit, performed it in ways that was um, stereotypically feminine, and he was he was really looked at as kind of like the the, the community outcast, and it's just really taboo. You just don't talk about it. It's similar to um, you know when I was over there, it, it was so sad. We were you know going to a funeral a weekend and um you know you'd you'd ask or you'd be told that this person died of pneumonia or died of tuberculosis and well i guess like down to the nitty-gritty level that's accurate um no one nobody um you know admitted that aids and hiv you know was was even an issue and so it's just it was very very taboo and um and so yeah i think that that experience shaped me a lot because I, when I left for the Peace Corps, I was kind of in a place of, of just not actively questioning, but just openly questioning my sexual orientation. And when I went into the Peace Corps, I was, I was just pushed right back into any closet that I was ever living in. And, um, and that was fine. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't over there to seek, you know, relation, um, relationships or anything, but, um, yeah, it, it was just an interesting period for sure. Okay, so when you moved back home from South Africa, you decided to go into teaching, get some experience there, and you, you became an English language development. Like, Is that like an early intervention teacher, or were you at like a preschool teacher? No, I was a kindergarten through fifth grade um, ELD coordinator and teacher, which means that um, for learners who's, speak English as a, uh, as a non-native language. I worked with them to help build their oral reading and written uh, English fluency. Right. So yeah. did, and did you like 
Did you like it? I did. I mean, I liked... It, it was a tough transition because I was, you know, just in total culture shock. But um, I really liked applying what I had gone to school for and actually using my degree. And I liked being taken seriously in my mid-20s. That was, mm-hmm. you know, in a professional level, that was cool. And I just, I loved working with the students. Yeah, the learners were a joy to be around and I learned a lot. So, yeah, I, I would say I enjoyed it. So, Libby, were you able to to be be honest with the children or the parents or your fellow uh, teachers about who you were, um, how you identified? Um, Well, it was a tricky time because I, when I was single, I didn't really care to, but then when I started dating Bethany, I felt this sense of pride and I really did want to share aspects of, um, you know, my personal life with, with people that I worked with and, you know, uh, just like a lot of heterosexual couples where I remember, in fact, I had a picture of Bethany on, um, a framed picture of her on my desk and several students, I was teaching kindergarten at the time and students would always come up to me and be like, Oh, who's that? And I remember always having to say, Oh, she's my best friend, you know, because I didn't want to lie to them and I wasn't, but I certainly wasn't telling the whole truth. Whereas, you know, any heterosexual couple, you know, or, or teacher, you know, is able to, to tell stories, you know, um, to be able to say things like, Oh, we did this over the weekend and not fear the follow up questions. Um, I was out to my colleagues over time, but even that was pretty selective. There were some people, um, I, I taught in a suburb of Portland and it was, I don't know, less progressive than, um, inner city urban Portland. And so I just had to be selective and, and, um, kind of sharing stories with people because some people appreciated it and, you know, would use it as opportunities to get to know me better and befriend me. But some people, you know, I just felt judged. I mean, um, so people that you came out to or people who who knew, you know, either gave you, either gave you the cold shoulder or said things directly or. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The cold shoulder. Um, or for instance, if I kind of added myself in a subtle way by saying things like, Oh yeah, my girlfriend and I, did that last weekend, then the person would change the subject really quickly or find a way to exit the conversation. And, you know, mm. that's just been a really um, informative way for me to kind of filter out who is um, queer friendly and who isn't. Yeah. Do you think that that's um, because of just a lack of comfort or lack of understanding of those issues? Or is it, or is it, or is it, uh, you know, bigotry and discrimination or maybe a bit of both? Yeah, I think the two kind of go hand in hand, but, um, well, know, but sometimes I it, couldn't say. It's hard because... Sometimes it's maybe because they just don't know what to say because they've, yeah, yeah. they've never known someone who hasn't conformed yeah. to what, you know, what they identify as. But a lot of times, to me, intention is what's important. And um, people may do things in, you know, like in... Uh, insensitive manner but don't intend you know and then it's more a matter of education versus um, um, you know really trying to work against discrimination and hatred or you know things like that right and so I guess in those moments you know is it my job to educate and you know sometimes I that I don't want to take up that role it's exhausting it's 
um, you know, sometimes uh, underappreciated. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I think intention is huge, but I also think impact is there too. And I, I don't know, I, I would say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I, I could hear and nod my head to the argument of, you know, people are just not that comfortable or, you know, but you know, with how diverse our world is, you know, even if it is a lack of knowledge or understanding or exposure to queer issues, um, you know, we all have to confront discomfort in other areas when we interact with people. And so to have no social skills or to have such underdeveloped social skills to even, um, I don't know, gracefully exit a conversation when confronted with, you know, the other, it's kind of, I don't know. I think that that time has expired to like excuse that. Yeah. No, I no, think I, I actually agree. I do agree. And I think that in, especially in education, it's important there more than in many other places. Not that it's not important in other places, but especially if you're working in an educational environment. No, I guess I didn't, I didn't mean that it shouldn't be addressed or that we should excuse it. It's more just, no, I think I was the one that made that comment anyway. Well, but like, you know, again going back to the intention like i'll be more forgiving and and patient i guess with with someone who who you know just is a bit naive about something versus someone who's like you can tell like they're coming from at a point of negativity yeah but anyway i guess i kind of well, no that's, sorry that, that's an important point because uh, you know you I, I personally don't ever really want to stifle conversation I mean, if people are open to dialogue then you need to keep those entry points open and I think if you um, if you do assume best intentions then that's a great way to you know be able to sustain yourself in these conversations so I, I wasn't being argumentative and thinking that what mm. you're saying isn't accurate I just um, I think you were being argumentative <laughs> I think that it you know, there is only a certain amount of time you, yeah, that you can sort of say, well, you haven't had exposure. So Libby, what, what, like of those conversations that become awkward for whatever reason, how often was it say just that naivety or how much of it was sort of ingrown values, family values? Probably difficult to, to like, know. I, just, I yeah. can't ascertain. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I don't know. Someone else, like, yeah, you just don't know where, where, where it's coming from. It just turns awkward. It just turns awkward and then you just sort of... I want to... How about them blazers, eh? (laughs) Kind of thing. Exactly. I wanted to just go back and explore something that you mentioned before about um, like that important of connectivity with your students, um, which I think is like particularly interesting to me because just coming from a communications um, specialisation and which I use a lot like you know it's it's a balance of sharing personal information with the people that you're working with professionally but i think it is really important that they see you as human and and it's difficult if you can't share that you know like you know so what what do you do when like for example last night um we had dinner with friends and one of uh the people we had dinner with is a school teacher and she recently got engaged and she was just telling us how, you know, when she went to school after they got engaged, then kids were asking her what her last name was going to be and, you know, all this other stuff. And I just sort of thought that's really, that must have been really hard for you when you got engaged to Libby because you would have faced to those Bethany. questions. I mean, to be, yeah. <laughs> I wish I could marry myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, it was it was hard um, because by omitting, like, uh, yeah, I either was forced to lie or dodge questions that, yeah, did create this distance among students that, you know, we had been working on building a relationship with. And it is, it's just tricky because, um, you know, and I've had conversations with people where they're like, well, I just, you know, teachers need to keep their public and private lives apart. And in context of talking about queer issues, it's like, um, you know, I, I, you know, that famous line of, I'm not a racist, but, and then whatever they're going to say is racist, but, you know, people being like, um, you know, I don't care what you do in your own bedroom, but in school, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, okay, but to reduce my marriage, my life to what I do in the bedroom, you wouldn't do that if I were heterosexual. And so it's that kind of, it's that kind of rhetoric that I think just immediately positions queer um issues you know takes it off the table yeah for a lot of teachers actually just following on from that maybe we can cover that sort of now i think it was a question that was gonna we had planned to sort of ask later but um i think it's really important to distinguish between sexual orientation and identity so maybe exactly. you can. We uh, talked about it a little bit previously. Uh, no, no, with the just uh, explaining cisgender. But, yeah, yeah, but, but maybe, maybe maybe if you can go into a little bit of detail about that, I think that's an important distinction to make, and I don't think that a lot of people make it. Yeah, they're often conflated in ways that, especially when you're talking about schools, can be detrimental. So, in addition to going back to the cisgender, in addition to being, you know, assigned a sex. Um, category at birth and then there's how you identify kind of you know that and, and I, gender identity is one of our first deve- identities to develop um, like around the age of four but in addition to that you also have the way you perform or express your gender which is more fluid it can change day to day and then you have the way other people perceive your gender performance so gender yeah you can unpack that all day long and then sexual orientation is who you're emotionally, romantically attracted to. So you could be gay, you could be lesbian, you could be bisexual, you could be pansexual, which um, sort of fits under that, um, you know, I'm in love with the person. You know, if Bethany was a boy, I'd be straight type of a thing. Um, there's asexual and, um, and a whole host of other ones. And so oftentimes where they get conflated is with what we've been socialized to identify as gaydar you know we'll have um you know a a boy a man walks in the room and he's wearing pink capris and he has kind of a a higher voice and um he's fabulous (laughs) he is fabulous and so right away you know people might make some assumptions about this guy's sexual orientation when indeed he's just transgressing gender norms and he's not necessarily coming out as identifying who he's emotionally or romantically attracted to. So, um, and, and, you know, there, there is some correspondence there. I mean, um, there are lots of gay people who do gender bend and, and things like that, but it, it, has created just a lot of um, just an influx of, of stereotypes, especially with, you know, contemporary media and TV shows and stuff. And, mm. um, 
and especially when you're talking education um, or in my field, elementary education, the danger of that is we do need to be talking about gender. I mean, if gender identity forms at age four and all our practices socialize students children to form lines based on if they're boys or girls, our own teacher perceptions of that, yeah. then then we do need to be talking about gender. But when we talk about non-stereotypical gender performances, people automatically go to sexual orientation. Yeah. And talking about sexual orientation means talking about sex and talking about sex to seven and eight year olds is not okay. And yeah. so yeah, it's it's a huge um, conflated problem in yeah. in education. That, that's a, such an important point to make, I think, and I think that's why people have been resistant to having this in edu- in elementary or like what we would call primary school in Australia. So Libby, after sort of this internal struggle of uh, coming out, not coming out, lying, hiding the truth, or just by omission, you asked your principal if you could tell your class, tell your students. Uh, sort of the truth of yourself, your identity, and whatnot. Uh, what happened? Yeah, so I, I had become engaged, like your friend Jazz, and my students immediately noticed the ring on my fingers. So I dodged questions for about two weeks about what his name was, what he does. I can't believe you haven't told me, Miss Murray. Man, I thought I thought you liked us. We didn't even know you were dating, and so. I avoided that for a couple of weeks and then I just had this epiphany of like, why can't I tell them? And there was in particular one fifth grade girl who I had been working with since third grade in ESL who, who did sort of defy gender norms. And I wasn't making any assumptions about her sexual orientation, but I was also thinking, um, you know, here's an opportunity to present the other um, and maybe provide a role model. Um, and so I went into my principal's office and I guess at the time I wasn't even thinking I was seeking permission. It was more of just, you know, heads up, you know, by the way. Yeah, or even just kind of, um, so I'm going to do this. Well, and so you, you kind of expected her to say okay or at least be okay with it in some way? Yeah, because I had been there for three years. I was a I was a solid teacher. Um, you know, I I was in I was engaged, which even puts me on this hierarchy of um, you know I was I have a lot of privilege. Even yeah, well, and I have a lot of privilege within the, the even the queer community. I mean, I can pass this straight. I'm a I'm a femme, and um, I'm I'm married, and you know all of those things put me into sort of a higher class. Um, and anyway, uh, yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Libby, Libby, did you have any colleagues who were, who were queer? No. Yeah. No. Um, I do. Yes. So I, I, so I went in the office and, um, and she's like, gosh, no, I'm sorry. But like the, the, I'd be on the phone for a week, the parent backlash. I can't, um, I wouldn't be able to, you know, uh, confirm that you'd be secure in your placement and your in your position and so I walked out of there and I actually just felt really ashamed for even asking I was like I mean it was a total paradigm shift I was walking out and I was like oh gosh I can't believe I I I was oh yeah or that I was even going to like how could I of course the students can't know and so that that was um, that was how she made you feel yeah or just how I internalized it I mean I yeah I mean I, I Based on what she said, it was my reaction to, but I think it was also um, bigger than that. You know, I, I I don't think it was just her 
top-down leadership. I think it was some internal struggle that I had of just trying to assert myself. And then when I did and I was rejected, kind of this internalized, like, oh, how, you know, have I been delusional? How long did it so, take you to realize that actually what had just happened was that you were a victim of discrimination? Probably, probably a year. I've never thought about that before, but probably a year, like the more. So then I finished out the year that spring and then um, applied to doctoral programs. And it wasn't until I got to the university back in the university and was around new colleagues that some were queer, most embraced queerness. And that was the focus of my research. And so once I dived into that, there was no turning back. Mm. Yeah. Um, Do you think that uh, you know, what do you think would have happened if she had been okay with you doing that? You know, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think there might have been a couple parents who were more protective of their kids or who maybe were more aloof with me, but I don't know. Maybe I'm too optimistic. I have a lot of faith that people would have just accepted it. Yeah. I would imagine like what she was thinking of was her bosses and her boss's boss and not so much the community reaction, although that's what she claimed was at issue. Sure. But like to me, that smacks of like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to have to talk about this in some staff meeting, yeah. you know, but, uh, but I don't yeah, know. I, I mean, obviously I, I wasn't there and she, I don't, I'm not her, but, and I, you know, yeah. in fairness to her. I, yeah. I did have one interaction with a parent the year before where I was teaching kindergarten and um, a, a parent came in and uh, I had taught the day before I was doing a mother's, it was around Mother's Day and um, my grade level team chose this book about families and it all was, um, you know, nuclear, you know, uh, husband, wife, families. And I, I was like, well, what about, you know, any of our students whose parents are incarcerated or who have single-led families or, um, you know, grandparents or other caregivers. And so I made my own big book, like my own book of pictures and words and taught it or used it. Um, and in there I included one family with two moms. And I had a great conversation with the kindergartners. They paused on that page and they're like, wait a second, there can be kids with two moms? Like it was the, the coolest thing ever in these kids' eyes. and um, you know, just these little light bulbs of like, oh, they love each other. That makes a family type of objectives kind of, um, you know, were solidified. And I had a parent come in the next day to get the original story. And she was really, really upset. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm raising a, a Christian child and you were teaching gayness and that's not okay with me. And so that was an interesting conversation and I was unprepared for it. Um, and so I, I imagine this principle was also informed by, you know, stories like that. And so, I, I mean, I'm, it's so sad. I think there would have been some pushback. It's so sad that um, when you talk about their reaction to when you went through it, and I'm so often trying to get parents to recognize that gleam, you know, like they actually like occupational therapists call it the gleam in the eye, which is and like, you know, oh, the moment of a, of a quality interaction you know, and if you could just recognize that gleam and then you go out of your way to try to take it away, you know, like you're, you're teaching your children to hate and you're taking away something that they felt was valuable. And it's just really sad that 
you know, inherently they feel happy about what you've told them and then society just comes and robs them of that. Mm. Uh, so Libby, currently, do you have any kind of uh, public profile in the community? Um, do you get any kind of acknowledgement or abuse for what you do, who you are? Um, in the community, do you mean like my academic like academia or do you mean the any circle that you run in any yeah just maybe give us some information on each one sure um my worlds have actually collided in a really neat way where i feel like i am at home and welcomed in kind of the the interface of academia and queerness um you know, on campus at Portland State University, I'm looked at as someone who's knowledgeable and skillful and has resources. And a lot of teachers, uh, professors and students come to me to, you know, share stories or get support, which is wonderful. And then when I transverse over into the queer community, um, you know, at, at an event or something, I mean, I, I definitely within my own circles of friends, you know, feel feel like other aspects of my identity are, are embraced too. So I think juxtaposed, especially, you know, the conversation we had earlier about where, um, where I got off this path, I, I definitely feel like I'm at a good place. Mm. Have you ever sort of like experienced things differently when you move out of the environment that you're in most of the time? So you live in Portland, right? Which mm-hmm. is a pretty liberal area of the world and of America as well, I guess. Did mm-hmm. What about like when you and B came to Australia? Did you experience anything like different? No, actually. I don't think so. Um, no, I mean, everyone really embraced us. That Your friends and family were just amazing. And we. I don't remember getting any kind of stares or any outright discrimination or anything in airports or out in public at all Hmm. no yeah brisbane tends to be i think it tends to be fairly accepting of those kinds of things from what i've seen i think that there's always that um you know some dick in their car will drive by and yell things if you know if they see something that they think is you know against what the norm if you will Mm. but for the most part like Mm -hmm. i don't like I think, you know, it's like the States, I guess, and probably like any other part of the world. Like, you know, if you, it depends where you go. And I think that like Brisbane's pretty, it's a bit of a melting pot of all different types of people. Mm. Um, But yeah, I mean, once you sort of start coming in further inland, it's probably a bit Mm -hmm. different. Maybe. Yeah. Um, Libby, have you you kept in contact with any of the people uh, discussed thus far? Um, Old... uh, so like maybe the print your principal teachers yeah no um, my principal actually um, died of Lou Gehrig's disease oh. if I'm saying that right a few years ago and so um, I I never touched you know or um, have reconnected with her although I I'll also say that we didn't leave on bad terms either um, you know when I left the school I was still pretty muted and um, kind of understanding what had happened and I wasn't at the phase yet where I was angry or um, disappointed or disrespected or anything like that so um, and then teachers not really I'm I'm on Facebook with a few of my old colleagues but none that I would say I'm I 
connect to in a direct way. Mm. And I don't think that's because of anything, like any of the fallout of what happened. I think it's just circumstantial. Mm. Yeah. Why, why don't we um, move on and have a chat about, have you, have you been back into the classroom since you left way back then? Yeah, um, I, not as a, as a lead classroom teacher. I went straight to Portland State to earn my doctorate. But since then, I've worked in a supervisor role. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I was a supervisor, I should say. <laughs> and uh, so I I have gone into the classrooms over the last few years observing the pre-service teachers that I mentor. And so in that way, I've been in the classroom, which has been nice. But I haven't been in the position to um, really replicate the same student-teacher relationships that I did when I was a classroom teacher. Yeah. And I guess so. that's sort of um, the reason that I asked that is I just sort of want to f- find out if you're seeing anything different in the classroom now to um, what it was like back then. So like, you know, pretend that you're in like a typical classroom, what types of things would you see now? And is it different? Um, I would say it, it doesn't seem all that different um, it, from what, you know, and these are just snapshots that I get, but um, I mean, it's, I don't know, you walk through a classroom still and it's just identifiable, you know, students are identifiable by stereotypes about what they're wearing, whether it's colors or, um, you know, the way advertisers glob onto kids with regard to, um, you know, marketing towards girls about being collaborative and um, cutesy and boys for being rough and tumbly and um, I mean, it seeps into the curriculum, you know, books and stories about moms and dads and, and really that excludes all kinds of families and, um, particularly in some of the schools that I'm, um, observing in a lot of, you know, there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of single headed families. And so, um, but, but at any rate, with regard to queer issues, the curriculum just seems to perpetuate cisgender, um, and, and, um, heterosexual kind of ideologies and then really rigid gender norms. Um, and things like, you know, during math instruction, and this might be, you know, my own lens and the filter I now use, but a lot of times it's easy to tease apart the, the different ways in which girls and boys are praised and, you know, things like math where boys are, expected to do better and um you know and then within a poetry unit you know that's the girl's time to shine and um Mm. yeah and then of course all the the unstructured situations like lunch and recess I mean you just have to listen to kids to know that they they are talking about sexuality it just happens to be you know heterosexuality and playing Mm. house and who's going to be the mom who's going to be the dad and um yeah, and all kinds of things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I would say I don't, I can't give a direct comparison just because I'm not in the classroom as much as I was, but I, I would say it's still very, very um, institutionalized the way we look at gender in such a rigid way and the way that we prescribe performance, um, you know, gender norms and stuff. And then certainly the, the lack of um, non normative you know, discourse around sexual orientation just perpetuates this idea that, you know, even young children will form, you know, romantic relationships with 
members of the opposite sex. Mm. Do you do you know anything about the history of I guess what you'd call your whatever movement you're a part of or um, trying to uh, bring queer awareness into education? Because I'm, I'm obviously when you wrote your when you wrote your book, you have you know a ton of uh, uh, literature that you poured over mm-hmm. to to yeah. to be able to inform at least you know the history of it or what's been done so far. How yeah. um, how far does it? Do how back? old is it? What's the uh, where do you come into it? Yeah, I, I would say. I mean, it's. I would say within the last. I mean, it's been written about for the last, you know, 50 plus years, but I would say within the last 20 years, it's really had um, a spike in terms of the attention that it's it's received. Um, a lot of that, I think, is in part to the Gay, Lesbian, Straight Education Network, or GLSEN, who began, I think now, 15 years ago or so, um, but um, disseminating a survey every three years to thousands of, um, queer LGBTQ identified youth, um, across the nation. And they've given such great data to really, um, kind of carve out a platform for making these issues like, um, gay baiting and bullying and, um, you know, some of the risk factors really, really, um, publicized and apparent. And so in response to that, I think people have gotten pretty serious about writing on the topic. Um, and then I think over time, within the last 10 or 15 years, conversations have kind of trickled down from looking at this from the high school level to what can we do in middle school to what can we do in elementary school. And now that's kind of being, I feel like in my review of the literature, it's kind of now going from, okay, what are we doing? What does elementary school look like? And what are we doing about it? into, okay, well, given what we now know about K-12 education, how can we better prepare teachers? So at my level, the pre-service level, how can we better prepare teachers to address this need? And so so I would say my entry point would be like the last 10 years in terms of having the conversation about centralizing it in elementary ed, which is my practitioner focus, but then also as of more recently, you know, really focusing on, well, how can we prepare teachers, all teachers, to um, confront and interrupt cisnormativity and heteronormativity in classrooms. Um, so, so, yeah, with, it's, it's, a, it's an exciting time. So with all, like, the research, I guess, and with all of the, um, you know, concerns around, you know, bullying and, you know, suicides and even, like, hate crimes and stuff, why is it taking – do you have any theories about – um, why it's taken so long to, and why you still aren't seeing implementation at a classroom level. Cause you know, like with anything like, um, it's always linked back to education, right? If there's a social problem, you always go back to education to try to solve that problem. So, and obviously that's where the research is pointing. Mm-hmm. So why aren't you seeing it there? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. I don't know that I'm qualified to ask other than to say, it hasn't been addressed in education because education is an institution. And especially when you come, you're talking about children, the institution is so protective of, of its children. And so I just don't think it's really translated there yet. Yeah. I guess the contradiction for me is um, the consequence 
the consequences of not educating about it is what's hurting children, you know, and like protecting them is by giving them information. And I think that it's like not just from a gender um, point of view or an identity point of view, but also like you talked about before that, you know, single like single parent families, you know, all that type of stuff. Like what happens if, um, you know, there's a child in the room and you're talking about mums and dads and like their dads passed away. You know, yeah. or their mum's passed away or they live with their grandparents because they're both their parents passed away. And it's just sort of, mm-hmm. you know, like if you don't, if you don't explore diversity, you're going to, that's going to hurt people. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's part and parcel with all, with sort of, I don't know, a puritanical uh, notion of, of just wanting to sort of scrub the conversation of anything that we just don't want to hear about. Yeah. You know. And we don't want our children to hear about. It's not even that we don't want our children to hear about it. We don't want to hear about it. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, they do actually do a pretty good job of spinning it in a way that doesn't seem so. You know, like I watched that. Did you watch that YouTube video, mate, that I showed you from that mothers and fathers movement in Ireland? They're just talking about you know make up your own mind on marriage equality because they just voted marriage mm-hmm. equality in like. Right. Uh, couple of yeah. days ago Yesterday, yeah yeah um and so yeah there was a a bit of you know um an ad that was circulating in Ireland just before the vote about you know if I oppose marriage equality why do I get shouted down and that's not democracy and all this other stuff and I mean they actually presented it in a way that was super like I can see that a lot of people would have went yeah you know, like, why do yeah. I get shouted down for asking questions about it? And it's just so shocking that they can spin it. Uh, they can yeah. spin bigotry and discrimination. Well, to be fair, sometimes neither side of it is, you know, whatever side of the issue you fall on. like It's not. We always have to be. I, I know. But my saying, argument with that is that it's not point of view. It's not a point of view issue. It's a basic human rights no, issue. But when you you don't, there's no, like. I feel this way about it. I feel that way about it. It's, you know, rights, human rights. No, no, that's that's fine. But I'm saying that you have to have a conversation about it first, regardless of whether you think it's this way and they think it's that way. They're, you just shouting that at them isn't going to make them think any differently. Yes, it will. <laughs> oh, is that the he who talks loudest? Those guys are finger-pointed the, like this. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, um, Get up in their face. But you know what I mean? Like... It always has to be a conversation, not a shouting match. Yeah, and I, I think that's. I guess it's just what, hard with people. They're just as closed off yeah. to my argument as I am to theirs. All right. <laughs> well, I think uh, the part that does make it more human and that feeling piece comes when, when there's that threat of like, um, okay, so my son is playing in the dress-up box. He's gonna be. He's gay. Um, you know. So then. So. So then I feel like some parents who who might have a disposition toward bigotry, you know, that's where they enter the educational conversation and kind of try to manipulate things to, um, I don't know, to, to not, uh, to not open the doors of that, the possibility. Mm. The problem is, I think like, and just seeing sort of a close friend of mine go through that exact experience is that it actually shuts them off from you, you know, like it doesn't, you can't control that situation and it makes your child withdraw from you. you And then they have all these. I think as a nation though, we're, we're just starting to understand that. I mean, like Obama's right now in the U S is 
trying to get a law passed that bans reparative therapy because parents are still sending their kids to these Mm. Christian therapists to cure them. And yeah, I mean, the psychological ramifications of that must be so vast. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And then, hey, if if you want to put it in their in their language, like imagine how much that that costs the health system. Well, actually, you guys don't have a um, government-funded health system, but it still would be yeah. That's one way or the other. The the public bears some health burden, yeah. Whether it's a privately funded thing, and and mental health is like just as big as physical health. Oh yeah, because then they end up in and they end up in the criminal system, or they end up in yeah, like in a mental homeless you, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, Lib, maybe you can tell us a little bit what what you're aiming. Um, to to achieve with with your book, maybe just give us a bit of a description of what your book looks at. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think the overall aim is just to provide some awareness and education, and to try to offer something where anyone can enter, no matter where they're currently at, with their comfort or level of understanding. Um, in particular, I mean, the audience is for educators, and so it's really striving to help equip educators with the knowledge, skills, and dispositions to to infuse queer content into their, their practice. Um, and yeah, the book is structured kind of in a three-fold um, dynamic. The first offers, the first is actually kind of the baby of my dissertation, I mean, it offers a little bit of framing and background, a bit of a literature review, and then um, it goes into discussing the research that I did that followed pre-service teachers around to kind of illuminate what um, cis cis and uh, heteronormativity look like in education today. I just tried to paint that picture. And um, Sorry, what do you mean by pre-service teachers? Is that like student placements? Yeah, Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's um, so people who are come to university who are in a graduate program to, um, in our case, earn their master's degree and their teaching license. In particular, I work with um, so future or pre-service elementary and mid-level middle school um, teachers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So generally, they take coursework and didactic stuff, but then they also are in the field doing some form of student teaching. Yeah. And so I followed seven or eight of them around um, over the course of seven months and just looked at ways that they encountered and made sense of queer phenomena. And they kept journals and we did interviews and focus groups. And so I, like I said, kind of illuminate that experience in the book. And then um, use that as a launching pad because that research that I conducted kind of informed our our local department at the university. Um, it, it informed us that we need to be addressing this because mm-hmm. indeed our pre-service teachers are experiencing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and by this, I just mean encountering queer phenomena and not really having the tools or knowledge to know what to do with it. And um, so then... So then the department worked really hard to do some um, faculty development and build our own knowledge base and skills. And so that's written in the book, which I think can be particularly helpful for other universities that want to start doing this work, um, you know, with their pre-service teachers. And then the final part of the book just offers 
a whole bunch of resources um, in the ways of lesson plans and curriculum entry points and um, tangible uh, activities that that department chairs at the university level um, or teacher educators or K through 12 teachers can use to eventually, hopefully, trickle down to the um, K-12 learners to really make an impact. There was actually one, st- there was one story in there. It was in the last chapter about one of your students who had, mm. you know, she had a, um, one of her students who yeah. uh, was transgender and she didn't really mm-hmm. know how to deal with it. So all she did mm-hmm. was basically like, hey, what, how do I deal with this situation? I mean, that's the funny thing is like yeah. a lot of times it's just, what do you want? Like, mm-hmm. what do you want me to do? And I'm happy to do yeah. it. You just got to tell me because I don't know. Cause, um, and it's just having that conversation going. Oh my God. That yeah. just start the, it, as awkward as it may seem or as difficult yes. as it might be to approach in the beginning. Um, you know, I think that's the way it is with most things. You just got to talk yeah. about it, which I think is sort of think- what I gained from your book. You know, we need, this needs to be on the table. It needs to be yeah. something that we have in our consciousness so that we don't steamroll people who mm-hmm. just fall in the margins mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and don't push them, I, try and push, you know, a square peg into a round hole. I totally agree with you. And I think, I think where the challenge lies or where that falls short is we were so socialized to be, politically correct and um and you know we don't want to use the wrong language um you know are they african-american or are they black and i think that is really hypersensitized in the lgbtq community because you have all these acronyms you have all these um you know it, it just is kind of like it's a community that that does talk about sexuality and defying gender norms and so I think a lot of times when we do ask the question, even as simple as what preferred pronouns do you prefer, which is can be such a great way to start a conversation, validate someone and, and kind of counter the rigid, you know, binary. Um, but we don't say that because we don't want to offend them. And mm. so we ignore it or we, you know, the colorblind approach or something like that. And I think, or you feel yeah, like maybe you're expected a- to know. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. It, yeah. 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 And with education too, from top to bottom, it seems like education is one of those things um, where that's probably one of your biggest hurdles is is um, um, that political correctness sometimes and mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. expected uh, understanding of the way things are, you know. Right. So, mm. do you know yep. if the book has been used as a teacher resource yet? Um, this term. My colleague and I are using it for one chapter. We're using one chapter of it for um, an assigned reading for our LGBTQ advocacy and K through 12 education course. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know we're doing that. And then book sales have been okay. Um, but I, I don't have any know-how if, if it's being picked up or used in any other coursework or like as a, a book club group among any faculty or staff at any place. I, I haven't gotten that kind of feedback See you around the way. All right. Sounds good. Thanks Bye so then. much. <laughs> Bye. Uh, teaching workforce. Have you heard back from them regarding um, like your research? Um, I guess mm-hmm. this is probably the first term you've implemented the book. Yeah. Yeah. So have you heard back? It from, is the first term. Yeah. 
Have you heard back from any of the previous ones when you were doing the research? Um, in, in terms of the, the eight that I followed in the field, I keep in touch with one regularly. Um, and she taught for a few years and um, had mentioned once or twice that just having that experience really helped her in kind of presenting a more inclusive curriculum for her students. But she's really the only one I've kept in touch with. Um, and, but I have, you know, there have been multi, like many students that I've worked with um, once I became a more visible ally within the department who come back um, and, and talk to me about stories that they've had or will go out to coffee and they'll say, you know, I'm working with this this child right now who disclosed to me that, you know, so-and-so and, you know, this is how I'm dealing with it. What are you, are you, do you, you know, and dealing, I guess is a charged word, but this is, you know, how I'm responding to it. Do you have any suggestions or any thoughts? And it's just great dialogue. And so mm. it, it is nice that, you know, putting it on the table, as you said, Ryan, I think just provides a open invitation for ongoing dialogue, which can be so helpful as we're all just getting our heads around this work because, it is so new and it is so, um, it's just uncharted. So the more we can, as professionals and educators talk about it, the more we can hopefully do a better job of being responsive yeah. mm -hmm. to learners. Well, that's about all the time that we have to chat about this today. Libby, I want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to talk about uh, this very important issue, uh, your life, your book. It's been incredibly informative as much as it has been interesting. Um, so thank you. Oh, are you guys kidding me? It's my pleasure. It was the pleasure. I've been was a fan of the ours. podcast for a very long time. <laughs> for as long as it's been going, all two That's months. That's right. Of it. Hey, we've done yeah, like ten podcasts or something. Well, this was uh, this was very informative. Um, it's something that uh, if you haven't uh, run across a copy of the book, you should go pick it up because it's a good read. What's it called? It's very well written. Lib. Queer inclusion in teacher education.